Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back one more time to Resilience Unraveled. Uh, another guest, um, and I'm looking forward to this one. I think I think, I think Kathy Hagler and I are going to have a good old gossip. And she's going to spread all sorts of enlightenment and interesting thoughts and comments around. And um, hopefully it's going to be great. So hi, Kathy. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm doing good, Russell. Good. How's your day? How's your day? My day is great. And um, I'm at the near the end of my day, but I'm guessing, judging by your accent, you're at the beginning of yours. So I'm where the in beginning. the world are you? I'm in North Carolina in the oh, U.S. Lovely. Yes, and we just missed the hurricane. Yes, yes, because I, I gather it was pretty horrible. Yes, but it's almost over and I'm pretty far inland, so I'm okay. Fantastic, good to hear that. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the big towns in North Carolina, because I know we've looked at going out there to the, is the beaches, um, is it Myrtle Beach, is that more North Carolina? No, that's in South Carolina, but you could come to the Biltmore Inn, and that's, that's in Asheville. So I live right outside of Asheville. Asheville, that's right. That's kind of fantastic houses, and it's it's not Beautiful. Dollywood up there, is it? Oh no, that's Dollywood too. You can come see Dolly. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> I get to appointment with Dolly. <laughs> you could get me an appointment with Dolly. Now we had a road trip planned, which was actually going to Asheville and Dollywood and Pigeon Falls and all those places. Pigeon Forge, uh huh. Pigeon Forge, that's it, absolutely. Pigeon well, Forge. It would be lovely to talk geography all day. <laughs> we probably can. not that interesting. So we better, <laughs> we better buckle in and talk a little bit about your podcast, about your work. So tell me what it is that you do. I am an organizational consultant. I've had my business for almost 40 years. And uh, before that, I was the dean of a college. And before that, I was three years old. <laughs> As they say, the olden were the oldest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Actually, before that, I was a pianist. I'm also a musician. Are you really? Tell me yes. more about that. Well, I uh, started taking lessons when I was four, and I started teaching piano when I was 12. And uh, then I got a degree in music, decided that I wanted to be a musician, but found that, you know, a musician from a little town in New Mexico couldn't, couldn't really get the publicity I needed. So I decided to go into teaching. So I'm also a math, I have a math degree. So I started teaching mathematics. And uh, from teaching, I decided I didn't like teaching mathematics because I really didn't like working with little junior high kids. And so I went to the college level and became a dean when I was three. 
<laughs> Good. No, no, no. Joking aside, for one second. Um, okay. Your mentors. I mean, hang on a minute. Peter Drucker and Deming. Yes. All, tell me more about this. This is um, so. A bit I amazing. was. I was um, a very fortunate person. I'm. Um, I'm an only child and sort of out there. And I got really interested in Deming's work because I was really interested in working with business. And Deming came into to Orange County, California, where I was a dean at the college. One of my uh, other mentors who had been the head of engineering at MIT said, I'd like you to meet Dr. Deming. Would you like to go to dinner with us? So I went to dinner with and was able to sit next to Dr. Deming. And I told him that I was a musician and a mathematician. And he said, would you like to travel with me? And I didn't even take a breath. I said, yes. And so I went with him for about a year and it was, it was really glorious. We went all over the country and I really acted. I sat on stage with him and sort of was his girl Friday. That's the best I could say, but I learned so much and he's really, he was really a master and it was, uh, it was fascinating. I would go to him on Fridays. We would go to teach at New York University Statistics. During the week, we'd usually go to either Ford or General Motors or Kodak, or we went to all these companies as, as a consultant and I went with him for a year. So I just felt like I was really fortunate to really learn from the hand of a master. During the same time, I was getting my PhD at Claremont and Peter Drucker was my major advisor. And Peter Drucker and I became friends got to be very good friends. And uh, actually, he asked me about perhaps his son buying my company. So we got to be very close. And so I feel like I had the father of management and the father of continuous improvement and quality sort of as my mentor. So I'm a, I'm a very lucky young lady. Wow, uh, that's uh, staggering. And I mean, what are your, I mean, most people don't know the people we've, we've read about their work and you know, we study what they have to say and, you know, it's, what, what do you take away from the people, the characters themselves? What, what, what? Oh my goodness. That's really interesting. I, um, I loved both of them for different reasons. Peter Drucker um, was very, um, very much a gentleman, but very um, much into leadership and very much wanting to, um, to understand how to make leaders better in the organization and the fact that leaders were so much in charge of how the organizations ran. And so the personality of the leaders were very important. So I got to know him very well. And, and I think he really ap appreciated the systems and my system thinking. My, I guess my most fun was with, with Edward Deming. He was very crotchety. And of course, at the time I was in my 40s and he was in his early 90s. I traveled with him about five years before he passed. Um, but my favorite story is uh, we went to Ford Motor Company one day and we were teaching about 2000 people and he, um, he, we had been on stage all morning and we had for lunch they had a buffet, which is kind of unusual when they have that many people and then they mm -hmm. took Deming and I up to the front of the line and Deming said, we can't go to the front of the line. He said, these are willing workers they need to go to the front of the line. We'll go to the back of the line. I love that man. He loved the workers. He loved the workers. He loved work. He loved the fact that they were there giving their best. Mm. So everything we did had to do with the fact that he loved the workers and he loved the work. So I guess I just felt like I was in the presence with both of these gentlemen of masters. And I don't know how I could have ever, I could ever, 
done anything better because I got to travel on the trains and planes and cars and I, I had lunch at Drucker's home with with uh, he and his wife and and went to church with with dimming where he donated all the music and all the church and went to his cemetery the cemetery with him for to see his wife mm. so I got to know them very well as people but they were genuine smart and very dedicated to make organizations better and and I mean these people were at the forefront of leadership management as a as a practice rather than as some sort of strange science or art I mean yes you know, management by objectives still, right. you know, exists to this day. I mean, you know, right. and it's interesting you say that about Deming because actually he was seen much more as a, a systems thinker, more, more mechanical, robotic, more, um, um, I can't think of the word, uh, processing sort of person. He was very processy, but yeah. he had such a heart. Yes. He had such a big, huge heart and he yeah. wanted to know how can we better help the people? Yeah. Because he understood the system, but he didn't understand the people. <laughs> yeah, that's often the way, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. But it's often the case as well that I think I, I think I remember him saying that. Uh, I think I don't know was if it was him or not saying that. Uh, you know, if something goes wrong. It's not the person that means the process was wrong in the first place. And, and right. he's, so that's that story about Ford is very interesting. I think it sort of reinforces that. But um, but uh, that's absolutely fascinating. So so how have you taken? their thinking forward because I guess having those sorts of people as an influence it would be it would be odd if you hadn't had them in the mind for the rest you know you might have discarded certain things that they said obviously things modernize things change but I'm guessing I'm guessing some of the some of their values or maybe ideas still permeate the work you do today perhaps well it it not only permeates it it really drove it it really has driven my my consultant practice is Mm. that I really understand how to do continuous improvement quality of the work. I've taught that. I teach companies to do that. I teach them to improve their work. Um, And I understand leadership. So I do leadership consulting. I do uh, executive coaching. But what I've understood in all of that is neither one of them really got culture. Excellent. They both got leadership and they both got systems and they both got how do we train people? How do we how do we do process work? How do we work with the customers? How do we get return on investment? How do we do finance? Nobody got culture. And so I've been really, really struggling for all these years to say all of their knowledge and all of their wisdom and all of their beautiful work. How do we really define culture? That's what I've been working on. And, and that's fascinating because I absolutely agree with you on this. And and I think you've got an approach which is it K two O H solutions. Yes. Is, is yes. This your, is your, this is your thing. Could you want to tell us a little bit more about that? I'm yes, looking at K- a graphic of it at the moment, which is actually pretty pretty amazing. So the K two O H. Sometimes people thought that was some kind of chemical formula, and so since I work with a lot of chemists, I asked me to make sure that that wasn't really poisonous, yeah. and it isn't. K two stands for there's two Kathy's, my business partner and I, Kathy Op and myself, it's Kathy Two, and Op and Hagler. So it's K2OH Solutions. And what we bring is we bring a model called the um, Organizations of Character model. And the Organizations of Character says that we not only look at your 
culture and we look at your culture and climate, but we look at your strengths and your weaknesses and we look at the reciprocity between culture and climate. And at the end, what we do, we partner with you to become more and more successful. And we have, a, I have a 40 year track record. I've never marketed. It's just that people call and they say, well, you ought to go try them or you should go get them because they really know how to work on both culture and the climate and the structure of the organization. So it was Deming and Drucker's work, but also their sort of their passion, might I say, that really guided my search and my, um, my passion for really wanting to understand how people and process fit together. Wow. And, and, and where did the, where did the um, I don't mean inspiration, because inspiration is the wrong word, but where did the, the sort of intellectual thinking come from to, the, to create the model that you've come up with? Um, I grew up, I grew up, um, yeah, I grew up young. <laughs> I'm still young. Like some of us. <laughs> I love you. Um, I was a very sickly little kid. I had spinal meningitis when I was six months, and then I had I had cancer by the time I was six, and I had a lot of different things going on in my life. So I I had a lot of scars. Um, then twenty years ago, my son was killed in a car wreck. He was twenty. And right after that, my husband died of cancer because he couldn't deal with my son's death. And right after that, I got cancer because I couldn't wow. deal with either one of them. Mm -hmm. So what I thought was, you know, there is, I am, I have learned to fly. My scars have been giving me wings. And I, and I looked at organizations and I said, you know what? Their scars give them wings too. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a similarity and a reciprocity between individuals and organizations. So what is this? How can I look at this to say, how can we define culture in terms of what I've been through and also process in, in terms of what, what people go through? So I did a lot of reading, looked, a lot, looked at a lot of information, landed on a book called The Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton. And basically what he talks about is the fact that our subconscious minds as people have 95%, they, they, they deal with 95% of what we do as human beings. They're hardwired, they're our program. Mm -hmm. And we learn it from age one to seven. Well, I knew from age one to seven, I was poor and I wasn't very healthy. Yeah. And so what I looked back at it is I said, I got all that stuff, but, but as I transferred it to my conscious mind, I learned how to heal. So what I said is, what does that mean? How can I take this healing that I learned how to do as a young child going into adulthood, going into people dying in my family, into my own diseases, and I learned how to heal. I learned how to fly. And so I looked at organizations and I said, how can I make the comparison? And so what I, my, I guess my, um, my passion came about the fact that I think I figured out how to heal culture and climate of organizations. So but I learned that from understanding the human body. Yes. And, and you use uh, Japanese yes. sort of I concept, use, don't you? I use the wabi-sabi concept. And wabi-sabi says nothing is perfect. Now you'd have to start me uh, and help me with that. So tell me more about that if you would. Okay. Wabi Sabi. It's W-A-B-I-S-A-B-I. It's a Japanese concept that says nothing is perfect. Everything breaks. 
And if you go back into some of what we've learned is that the, um, we've also learned that there's a, um, a word called entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics, which says everything breaks. So wabi-sabi is kind of built on the thing that everything breaks. Yeah. So I saw a Kintsuji vase online. And a Kintsuji vase is one of those beautiful vases that looks like somebody's thrown it on the ground, picked it up and glued it together with gold. So when I saw that vase, it hit me. That's what we're do we've done. We've broken apart, but we've been able to glue ourselves back together with gold. And we're better than we were before. We're more unique and we're more distinctive. So what I did was take the idea of wabi-sabi and the kintsuji vase, which represents wabi-sabi, and said, that's going to be the vision that I introduced to organizations and to people that says, you can break apart, but you can also heal. Which is you, the actual and, definition of resilience, isn't it? Which is, which it is, is absolutely right. So, 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 so let me unpack this a little bit. I'm guessing then, given that you have the ability to heal, that must affect the culture in some way. Does that make you less risk averse, more open to innovation? You know, how, how does that manifest itself if you have this ability to heal? Now, that's a, that's a very interesting question. And since you, you do so much on resilience, um, what I found in doing all this work is the, the very presence of fear. And fear sits in a person's subconscious. I mean, it, it sits in there from the time we're born and we're built with it. It's programmed into us. It's the fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And we're either going to run away we're going to fight, we're going to be aggressive or passive, or we're just going to freeze and we're going to run in place. And so what I found is that if we can, if we can get at the subconscious of a person, and I believe that the culture of an organization is the subconscious of the organization. Hmm. So if we can get at what scares them, if we can get at what makes them afraid, when they break, they get afraid. And then how can we then help them say, oh, wait a minute, I can heal from this. So what we do is we show them how to take their fear that they really weren't as broken as they thought and that they can take their fear, they can get rid of that fear and they can raise up into their consciousness. And what they find is they can innovate and they can be better than they were before. Yeah. I, uh, I worked with an organization recently who was, uh, they were, about to go out of business and close their door. We worked on this process using for three years. Just this year, they were so, they had so much money. Somebody gave them a building, a million dollar building. Wow. And so basically what they did is they turned it around and they took their fear. Yeah. And they said, we're going to use that fear. We're going to paint it in gold. We're going to, oh. you know, we're going to paint it in gold. And they did literally paint it in gold. Yeah. So, that's my process is to show organizations how to turn their fear and their brokenness into healing, but understanding that they've healed from wounds. So, so I like this. So let me, let me understand it a bit more if I may. Um, can you give me an example of a corporate fear? Oh, yes. Um, a corporate fear is, okay, I'll give you one at a university. It was uh, 
the students were complaining because everybody was cheating. And so the faculty in the administration said, well, we can't have this. We can't appear in the Wall Street Journal that says everybody says we're cheating. So they began to get afraid of the fact that the students were saying it's cheating. So their fear was that they weren't going to be recognizable and they weren't going to be distinctive as a university of research. And so we had to deal with the fear of them not looking good. Hmm. Interesting. So and, but and that's we interesting because what's the difference therefore? Because there's a funny thing, isn't there? There's the there's the leaders and the so to what extent is this just the the uh, group think of the leaders or what extent does it go into the culture and affect the organization as a whole so i believe that i believe that the that in the better companies the the group think of leaders is different than it used to be as i kind of grew up with Dimming and Drucker and, and watched leadership, it became more connective leadership. Hmm. And what I'm beginning to call it is leaderful. Yeah. And in the whole idea, and I have a company that I worked with who had a leaderful company and he did leadership training for every member of his team because every member of the team is a leader in their job. So what we begin to see is how do I take responsibility? How do I become accountable? How do I take my place? When I first met this person as the leader of the CEO of the company and I walked in the front door, he was sitting, he was sitting at the receptionist desk. And I said, well, Jack, I said, well, am I late? Were you waiting for me? He said, no, it's just my time to take the receptionist desk this week. He says, we job share. Yeah. Because we want to understand everybody's job. So what, what's the, what the truth is here is if you really begin to think about leadership as connectivity, as servant leadership, which is another older term, but I'm liking the word connective leadership, which Jean Littman Blumen brings about. But she talks about the fact that if we could all see ourselves as leaders, and because we, we all have a subconscious. Leaders have a subconscious and they have bad habits and wounds. The people have bad habits and wounds. So what we want to do is we want to grow together. And they look at those together. And that takes a certain kind of leader because it takes a certain kind of honesty to say you're broken. Yes. Yes. So I'm just thinking about what you're saying. So um, yes. I often wonder about servant leadership. I um I don't get it really. Okay. Um, what I, is I've it? Read, you I, and I've, I've read it, I've read all the literature and I've read all the all the stuff. I think I think what I've found in my experience is that um, I've worked with lots of beautiful companies that do do it all right and have spectacular financial results, and I've worked with companies that do it all wrong and have spectacular financial results. And and my my views coming around to the fact that what matters is the, the channel between leadership and followership and the culture that sits between them. And it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. I'm doing parenthesis fingers here. What yes. matters is, is how it's lined up. And I don't think servant leadership lines up because I think it's, it goes back to a different model of leadership and followership. Now, both leaders and followers have wounds 
but I don't, and I understand leaders leading le other leaders and I understand all of that stuff and I, can, I know where it comes from. I just, I, I just think um, it, it ignores the fact that the majority of companies are incredibly badly run, yet often very, very successful. I think, um, I think if you, I think the tool that really helped me understand this was there is a, a tool that's been out for many years, but it measures culture. Mm -hmm. And it measures the culture of the, uh, the, the, the culture and the behaviors of leaders. Yeah. And it measures the culture and, beha and the, the behavior and the uh, words of followers. And you look at the two and what you try to do is you try to, you try to align. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Yes. Yeah. Because they're not aligned. Mm. For instance, I do a lot of work with construction companies. And in construction companies, it's okay to be somewhat aggressive. Yeah. It's, it's not okay to be somewhat aggressive if you are a nun. That's a dirty habit. <laughs> I'm going to tell him you said that. I work at a monastery. <laughs> isn't, there a nunnery, isn't there a nunnery? Don't monasteries have monks? No, these, these, are, these are nuns. If there are these any are... nuns in a monastery, I think that would be a scary thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I get your point, so I'm being silly. So, so um, what I'm saying is that, is that it's an alignment issue. So, so I, and I, I agree with you so much. So let's say it's the leadership of the organization says it's okay to lie and cheat. Then it's okay for the rest of the organization to say it's okay to lie and cheat. We can make that work because the, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's a judgment, a moral judgment that we make. But the point is about alignment, isn't it? Now I've worked with organizations who say it's okay to lie and cheat are immensely successful. What matters is the alignment. And I think it matters, what matters is two things, not just the alignment, Russell. I think it matters about the alignment, but I think it also matters people's honor. Yes, and I, I think, think, that's, I a think di that's a different thing, isn't it? That's, that's a moral code. Well, it's a moral code, but there are so many people who have character, which if you, if you actually define character as trust, which is honesty, and respect and responsibility and fairness, then a people, if, if the boss says it's okay to lie, then there's lots of people that aren't gonna work there. Ah, but there will be lots of people who will as well. There's lots of people who will, but then let me yeah. give you, let me give you a thing that probably you hadn't thought about. So if there's people who lie and there's people who say, well, we're gonna just, we're just gonna give this a little bit. We're not gonna give them the whole story. The contractors are not gonna get the whole story. Would you like that? them to build your bridge? Mm, I don't know. No, I think there's, wouldn't. well, I think there's a lot of lying and cheating that goes on anyway. There's but a lot of, there and, is but, a lot but of. But people just pretend. The, the thing is, what's bizarre but, is we are, I, I think we're in this process of violent agreement where we're actually saying the same thing, but from a different perspective, that's all. I mean, I totally buy your alignment idea. I absolutely think that's exactly my experience as well. But and I think I think what you're saying is, is that a lot of companies lie to get where they are. And I guess what I'm saying is that if you go back to read things like built to last, and they what they're basically saying is the companies that have been around more than 100 years have probably also incorporated character. Yeah, no, but the, the point I think, um, the point I think where we come together in our Venn diagram, and this is your perspective, this is mine, 
Yes. Uh, I, I, I actually agree that these companies which are lying and cheating have a most have a scars mm-hmm. because actually and I think all companies do whether you're on the moral side or the, the the immoral side as long as you're successful you're going to you're going to get scars you have to create healing as you as you roll forward that's fascinating and then when they create healing uh, they it might be based on lies yeah, and, and let's think how many people in the world who think they're better, oh. but they're lying to themselves. But but that's enough to get through. I'm not saying, it's, you see, you and I are not saying this is right or wrong. We're just saying But, it but is. you're right, it is enough to get through. Yeah, for some people, that's all that matters, isn't it? Sometimes you just have to claw yourself to the next ob- obstacle sometime, don't you? And I think I think another thing that, that we haven't really considered here is when you think of that leaders and followers, um, I think they're better aligned if, if the leaders and followers are all, um, I guess they positively want the company to succeed. So they are all we. The people that are not aligned are me. They talk about me, that doesn't work for me. This process, I don't like this, I'm competing against them, that's about me. Mm. So the ones that are aligned, the followers and, and the leaders are we focused. They're we focused on how to work together. They're we focused on how to learn together. They're we focused on what the customer needs. But somehow, even if there's quote lies, they're we focused on the company. Yeah, I did some work with the, uh, I don't like to admit this, but some of the gov- in the government of US once. It's your fault. <laughs> I know, it's not talking about that. But I believe it or not, I taught ethics. Uh huh. And so th- they had some Secret Service policemen there. And one of the things they said is, let's talk about loyalty. And they said, there's really two kinds of loyalties. There's dog loyalty and cat loyalty. Yeah. The person, I mean, look, look cat loyalty is being loyal to the house. Now, can I no, just, the other way around? Dog Kathy, loyalty is being Kathy, loyal. Can, can I just jump in? We I just lost yes. you for a second there, and you said dog loyalty and cat loyalty and vanished. Okay. So okay. tell. So you I'm, said there was dog loyalty and t- t- cat loyalty. Tell me more about that. There's dog loyalty and cat loyalty. Dogs are loyal to the house. No, I'm sorry, dog person, and cats are loyal to the house. Yes. So it's like if you were a policeman. You really want somebody that's loyal to the house. Yeah. You don't want somebody that's loyal to the person because yeah. it's about the house and the rules. And so I think I think when you look at these things, there there is that there's this there's this thing where everyone needs to be aligned. Are we all loyal to the business? Are we loyal to the house? And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because I would suggest that most people are loyal to the person. Because actually, when a good manager or leader leaves, lots of people leave after them. Yes. Um, and actually, it's one of the it's one of the scars to a business, isn't it? Sometimes yes. a, a great leader leaving, and yet by the very nature, if you have a great business, you have to let those great leaders go. You so do. It's a, you have these paradoxes built into the hearts of some of these sorts of ideas, don't you? You do. Um, but I like your dog and cat thing. I again, I. I, I there's a there's a there's, I don't think it's a British idea of using a personality profile thing using dogs. And really? Are, yeah, yeah. There are nine different types of dogs. There's Labradors and um, terriers and all sorts of things. And there's one category of people that fit into no category, and they're all called cats. And uh, 
<laughs> and they're the people who are really difficult, you know, who walk along the, the, the edge and just knock the, knock the furniture off just for a laugh and climb the curtains. Because they're not loyal to anybody. They're loyal to the house. Well, that's it. Is that cats believe that that you owe them a living, don't they? That's That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, um, tell me more about the book then. How I can get my um, how I can get my cat paws upon it. Your paws upon it. Um, You can go to my website, kathyhagler.com. Yeah. And it talks about it um, about the book, the art of scars, and the art of scars is is a story about my scars, it's a story about people's scars, and then it's a story about the organization scars. And basically what the book tells you is how do you take the the word scar and use that as a process to improve your organization. Oh, okay. Right. So you've got an S-C-A-R-S. It's S-C-A-R-S. Would you like me to tell you what that stands for? I'd love to, yeah, but then okay. I'm just conscious of your time for a second because I know I can chat for a lot longer, but I, you probably have other things to do. So uh... I do. Well, I'll tell you real quick. S stands for stop the broken thoughts and feelings. C stands for courageously calm your fear. Mm-hmm. A stands for allow the perspectives of other people. Yeah. And R stands reinvent your plan and take the first step. And S stands for share your story and then start over. Brilliant. And it's and who's it written for? It's written for both workers and leaders, but it's also written for people who have their own businesses because we have a lot of scars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the more scarred people they face, the more those people have learned and innovated and moved forward. So that's we right. shouldn't be frightened of the scars either, should we? Right. So is this book written for you? Sounds like it. <laughs> am I gonna am I going to buy it? <laughs> I might, I might, I might send you one. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, now, now we're talking. I was already on yeah. Amazon buying it. So, but you know, oh. <laughs> I'll pause. <laughs> you just, you just pause. <laughs> Kathy, it's been an absolute joy talking to you again, both personally and professionally. I think we've had, uh, I think uh, you've really given us some value there. So thank you so much for that. And uh, as again, let's just encourage people to go to Amazon. And I think it's at Barnes and Noble. And I think it's in Amazon UK as well. So uh, yes. the art of scars. Yes. by Kathy J. Hagler, and that's Kathy with a K. Kathy and, with a K. Um, yeah, the Kathy with a K. It's important, that bit. And um, please rush out and buy it. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, Russell. You take care. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.